Somewhere along this journey, we'll find a way back. Mr. Paris, set a course for home. Welcome to the very first episode of Delta Flyer. I'm Stuart Hollis. I'm Thad Hate. And this week we're going to talk about Caretaker, parts one and two, which are correctly smushed together into one long run on Netflix. Hey, that's something at least. That beats the way Hulu handled Stargate SG-1. Uh, yes, it does. So to start us off, our synopsis from TV Guide, which doesn't do the nice thing that Netflix does and instead makes you go to two different pages. A Federation crew and a group of resistance fighters form an alliance when both are swept into a distant region of space and encounter a presence known as the Caretaker. And in the conclusion, the United crews try to escape from the Caretaker and and return to Federation space. Okay. So, if we're breaking this into two parts, I don't think they make an alliance in the first half. See, because it's all as one blob on Netflix, I really was not 100% sure where... Yeah. Because... I couldn't say for sure where it is either. Uh, and because it was ne- it was originally shot as one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was only broken into two for syndication. Hmm. Uh, so, the Star Trek Encyclopedia does have it listed as one thing. And it says... First aired in 1995, while searching for a missing Maquis ship, the USS Voyager is transported to the distant, unexplored Delta Quadrant along with the Maquis ship. The Maquis members join the crew of Voyager when their ship is destroyed. I like that synopsis a lot, although the very tail end is a little misleading. (laughs) And it does sort of not mention the caretaker at all. It's right there in the title, man. (laughs) I mean... So, to start off, we have an opening crawl. Yes, we and, do. And, you know, the timing of that's pretty great, since uh, this is new Star Wars week. Yes, it is. There was also a crawl for the first episode of Deep Space Nine. Okay. And it made sense in both instances, because there, I'm sure there were people who were watching the premiere of Voyager that had not seen all of Next Generation and Deep Space Nine to that point, and might not know especially because it would have been harder it would have been harder than for them to uh like know months ahead of time that a new star trek show was coming so that they could prepare themselves by watching the entire back catalog right and actually getting your hands on that back catalog to watch was a lot harder back then oh yeah i mean well that's that's what i'm talking about like all of it like the like every aspect of that was much more difficult back then oh yeah so, yeah, the crawl made sense, and it went by pretty quickly, and we get to see our friend Gauli Vec again. Yeah, he's pursuing a Maki vessel that has a 39-year-old engine? Yeah, that was surprising. Yeah, so here's what's, like, the weirdest thing to me about that thing. Like, the idea of a 39 or, or even older ship is not that weird. No. Um... As an example from our own life and timeline, uh, the B-52 bomber is a 50, yeah, I think it just, I think across the 50-year line, year-old airframe that has seen very little change to its overall design. There are any number of B-52s flying that have been flying for, well, 30-plus years. You know what's not 30-plus years old on them? The, the engines. engines. Because the engines have been reworked three or four times over the course of its life because they keep getting more efficient. Mm-hmm. So, also, if it is a... If, if the engine's 39 years old in that ship, then it's interesting because they updated the, you know, controls on the ship more recently because those were modern Starfleet design. Well, yeah, avionics, that's, that's a whole other animal. I'm just thinking if you go in for a refit... Mm. The intro, good, solid. Mm-hmm. Could definitely handle do- listening to that two hundred more times. <laughs> yeah, no, it was pretty good. Uh, I I do like the Voyager theme. Uh, I do have some. When I watched this, it, it did bring back some memories. Uh, the, like watching Caretaker did uh, because this is the first Star Trek premiere that I watched on TV when it first aired back in well wow. ninety five. 
I'm trying to remember the only like TV show premiere that really sticks out on my head would have been the one for 24. I'm sure I've seen other shows on their premiere nights, but for some reason, like 24 is the only one that sticks out in my head. It's like, yes, that's definitely one that I have seen. Yeah, I remember you and I watching the premiere of Stargate Universe. Oh, yeah. Uh, a week after it came out because it was a multi-parter. Right. No, I mean, yeah, it was like three-parter. Right, but the first two parts aired on the first night, and then the third part aired the week after. Right, and obviously we didn't want to have to wait a whole week for, and now, the conclusion. <laughs> right. But yeah, no, I remember watching this. Uh, I remember it aired on in this area on the local NBC channel because there was no UPN affiliate at the time. Hmm. It wasn't until season two that it went over to the UPN station. I remember UPN. Because uh, Voyager was actually the show that launched UPN. Interesting. Kind of. Like, UPN, well, it was the United Paramount Network, and they wanted a flagship show. And, well, Paramount's flagship property, certainly their flagship television property, mm -hmm. was Star Trek. And here was a new Star Trek. Yeah. 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 So, talking about Voyager, and not just around it, mm -hmm. <laughs> do the anklets beep every time the prisoners take a step? It sure seemed like it, except when Tom Paris was walking. But like when that one guy was going up and like was going up the la up the ladder, I didn't even notice. Yeah, no. Also, could Tom Paris have a bigger chip on his shoulder about you know like committing crimes and being put in what looks like a freaking white collar resort? Yeah, seriously. Yeah, Tom Paris has a very large chip on his shoulder. He also has some major daddy issues. Yeah, it's not like he got sent to pound me that prison i don't think the federation has that kind of prison no no probably not uh no Klingons. yeah Klingons yes yes they do we know they do we've seen it yeah but yeah no, definitely huge daddy issues uh and then of course we get to find out that he's also you know a massive chauvinist and misogynist and just like really just kind of a douchebag that was so creepy yeah really creepy only when they're in visual range. <sighs> Gross. I mean, you know, like weird science fiction puns. You always approach girls at warp speed aside. Just, uh. So in that scene with the shuttle. Um, yes. In different parts, uh, at one point it shows Voyager's registry on the side. And then at one point it says it says 1701D. Oops. Yeah. I did not notice that. <laughs> I think I was too busy scribbling down notes about Tom Paris being a raging douche. Which, what I find interesting on that is, I wouldn't have thought that they would have adjusted that in post. This is 95, they were still mm -hmm. filming with models. I would have thought they would have actually had that decal put on the well, model. Well, maybe they did. Maybe, for whatever reason, when they were doing the final editing, they were in, cr in a crunch time and realized, oh shoot, the model shot we had for this one maybe got damaged. Maybe, like, big scratch across the frame or something. Maybe, um, who knows what. Like, any number of things could have happened. Hmm. And so it's like, uh, 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 archival footage. We've got a ton of shots of, uh, you know, Enterprise D shuttle just cruising around. Just grab a couple of seconds of that and splice it in there because we still need those two seconds or we still need this joining shot or something yeah i mean you know it, it could be worse it could have been a runabout <laughs> yeah you know it would have if voyager had 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 runabouts though we probably wouldn't even have the same name for our show because the delta flyer probably never would have been made getting to that and then we can get back to other things the delta flyer itself which is awesome and badass mm -hmm is huge it is like it's a gigantic shuttlecraft yes and then when they meet neelix getting us back to the episode but jumping ahead they say we'll beam you over and tow your ship into our shuttle bay how large is the voyager shuttle bay is it just like the whole saucer section is the whole saucer section the <laughs> shuttle bay and then like like the captain's like in like in the in the port nacelle or something like is is that how voyager's laid out Unfortunately, I only have the TNG technical manual, so I can't oh, check those. Yeah, for shame. I don't even think there is a Voyager technical manual, actually. Yeah, probably not. 
But maybe if there was, maybe it could explain why everything on Voyager looks like it's slightly thicker than it needs to be, like exterior wise. Like it looks like half again thicker than it needs to be or should be. Yeah, a little bit. But that could just be like my more modern uh, expectations and aesthetic coming through. I mean, it looks less thick than it needs than everything needs to be compared to the Enterprise D. For instance, I would disagree on that because the Enterprise D has very few stark flat surfaces, unlike the rear end of Voyager and the leading edge of its saucer section. What's with the weird, like, mechanical stuff at the front of Voyager? That's what's always confused. Are the phaser banks? You're talking about the big, sweeping, dark gray curves. Yeah, yeah, those are the phaser banks. Okay, they're more. They they made them more noticeable. On Voyager, and also they would be more noticeable because it's a smaller ship than the Enterprise. Oh, D. It only so, has a crew yeah. complement of one forty-four. I don't think I ever, you know, crew complement of like one forty something, and the Enterprise D had what, like a two thousand person complement or something. It could hold two thousand people. It was, it's an aircraft carrier versus like a cruiser. Okay, hold on. We may may or may not be talking about the same thing. Cool. Okay, so not the thing at the very front. That is the phaser bank. I'm talking about the thing. Between the registry and the, the like, exposed circuitry. Oh, I do see what you're saying. I also am confused. What's that like? What's the dugout in the very front? Yeah. Okay. No, I hear what you're saying now. I get that. Uh, I don't know. Like, I like the design of Voyager, mm-hmm. but that's always confused me. <laughs> yeah, that part I don't know. And you are correct. We were talking about two different things. Yeah. But yeah, no, I know you, you, yeah, those swoosh things, those mm-hmm. are the face yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, yeah, the swooshy things. All right. Also, the bioneural gel pack thing. I want to talk about the bioneural gel pack thing. All right, go for it. So, my whole thing about the bioneural gel pack thing was A, bioneural seems a little unnecessarily redundant, but. Unnecessarily redundant, you say? I did say that it was unnecessarily redundant. Uh, we have them there so we can process the information more efficiently and faster. And that got me thinking, at which point will computers be fast enough? There has to be a point. There has to be a point where computers are going to be faster than anything biological. Yes, maybe without tripping into the singularity and AI and the downfall of man, but... Yeah, I, 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 is that is that the point where they're fast enough? Is that too fast? I don't know. What's your thing about the bioneural gel packs? Um, I, mostly I'm, I'm talking about future knowledge here. They were really, I mean, they sound kind of cool, but really they were there just to give yet another thing that vo- that they can't easily yeah, replace. Like at least like one, at least once a season, something goes wrong with the bioneural gel packs. That's yeah. a real, real problem. If Neelix would stop making cheese. <laughs> I, I was kind of thinking, with regard to the arc, when will computers be fast enough thing, with uh, Stevenson's, Neil Stevenson's most recent novel, sorry, second most recent novel, he's prolific considering how thick his novels are. Uh, Seven Eves. Mm-hmm. Where we cut ahead the 3,000 years to the sort of post-human future, as it were. And there's this throwaway bit that's fairly brief. Botmo is the worst word ever. Yeah. Uh, but it had sort of stuck in my head about the idea that, like, they have these, like, museums of the old, like, what old tech was left on the station, and they marvel at the idea of some device that could hold hundreds or thousands of gigabytes of data, because they grew up, you know, they're, they're their new civilization evolved in an, you know, omni-connected internet-based society. So they don't need the local there was storage. never a, yeah right. There was never any need for them to have hundreds of gigabytes of local storage. So if and I like as soon as he that was described, I was like yes, I can crock that. I can I can definitely like that's happening now. Right? No, it, it's starting to happen now. Like, I can definitely wrap my head around the idea of that, but I have trouble wrapping my head around the idea of a computer being fast enough. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. But yes, the bioneural circuitry, yet another thing to break on Voyager. But anyway, so 
we do have a cameo here. We get Armin Shimmerman as Quark. Yes. And this sequence I really enjoyed. It was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, showed us that Tom Paris is not always a raging douche, or at least he can use his douchiness for good sometimes. I have to wonder, okay, so you would have the answer to this better than I. Is it just humanity that is post-scarcity? Or is it the entirety of the Federation? I believe it's the entirety of the Federation. If you grow up in a post-scarcity society, and someone tells you such and such thing costs X units, how are you supposed to handle that? How are you like? How do you grow up in a post scarcity society, but also have to interact with people who are not yet post scarcity? Like how how do you square that circle? Yeah, they never really cover that well on Star Trek because yeah, man, I feel like that'd be such a great thing to explore. It would, but they don't really cover it at all because no, they basically just apparently like they do have they they do. Because, like, Deep Space Nine, obviously, yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. you know, paying for things all the time. Because Tom Paris says, Hard to believe you can find them on any planet in the system. That's an exaggeration. You know, there's a shop at the Volnar Colony that sells a dozen assorted shapes for one Cardassian life. And which is, I think, the very first time I'd ever heard whatever the Cardassian unit of money is called. But it, just the idea that it's... Yeah, and then later, when we get to the Delta Quadrant, and they don't have transporters, and they don't have replicator technology, but their phasers look exactly like ours, and they also have warp technology. Anyway. Um, well, I mean, that's not that strange that they would also have warp tech... That they that they may have discovered warp technology, but not replicators. The replicator's okay, but like the transporter, for example. That one feels like... Because as big as the Delta Quadrant is, and as we will discover how widespread the Kazon are, for example, surely someone somewhere also has transporter tech. Uh, Maybe. Okay, so think about it this way. Uh, On Enterprise, the transporter is just then starting to be used. Right, and we're, what, 70 years into warp tech at that point? Yeah, I, the yeah, because this Enterprise was the first warp five mm-hmm. ship, but they had plenty of warp before that, and also there were lots of other species out there that had warp long before that. But and the humans were the first one to do transporters. No, I don't think so. Actually, now that I'm thinking about right, it, right? But all but there's also the consideration that as Ensign Stadi yes tells us the you know, Voyager and the Intrepid class can do. A cruising warp speed of 9.975. Because warp is logarithmic under the new scale. Yep. Going from warp 5 to 9.975 is massive. Going from warp 1. Oh, yeah. You know, to warp 5, because at that point that actually may have been technically under the old scale. Going from warp 9 to 9. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. So, if they're getting to the Delta Quadrant. And as we will discover, because it would be, there'd be no reason to think the show could run for seven seasons if this wasn't going to be just a fact of life, that Voyager's not the fastest ship in the quadrant by, like, by a country mile, I mean. Like, it's not, yeah, it's 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 really stinking fast. It's faster than a lot of things, but it's not so fast that they can't just, like, just outrun anything that comes their way there's plenty of ships that can mostly catch up right. to them so that's what i it, it 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 would be like getting back to computers being fast enough if like a new uh, uh the for you and i the big the biggest most recent news is that the new imac pro came out which has 18 core xeon processors that do crazy things mm-hmm. mm. So to be like if when uh, Cortez landed in New- in Mexico, if the Aztecs had better guns, but all but didn't, but still didn't have wheels. See, this is where it gets interesting because wheels were predominantly developed mm-hmm. in Europe to put behind field animals, and they didn't have the yeah, and they didn't have draft animals in the New World. <laughs> So, 
that is both a good and bad analogy, actually. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, like those are two completely, like, completely separate tech tracks. <laughs> like, I mean, I guess air yeah. conditioning and, and microprocessors are as well, but. Just... <laughs> Warp and transporters aren't the same tech. Either. I suppose not. It's just, it's all future tech that I have to keep clicking like research for 10 turns over and over again. That's, That's all it true. is. true. It is just future tech in Civ, so. It's yeah. all just future there tech. There we go. <laughs> But you know what isn't future tech? Unified pads. <laughs> Janeway yeah. is on her... I've never... I don't understand most computers in Star Trek. Uh, Janeway's on her clunky... Just, you know, like just view screen, basically. So basically on Star Trek, they treat the electronic devices as just electronic versions of non-electronic devices. Uh, yeah, yeah. So she's got like three or four like Kindle slash iPad mini size things in front of her, each of which contains a report. Yep. <sighs> and that's just standard on Star Trek. And I wonder how like how how much of that was just like, well, this is how we have been doing it. We recognize that we started doing it because we couldn't quite wrap our head around the idea of all of it being on one device. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just it's better television if there's lots of them scattered around. I don't know. Yeah, but I, I definitely uh, can take your point there that it is a... Obviously, that wouldn't be how yeah, it would no, really no, no. work. Yeah. J- Janeway always has, like, more than I think any other captain I've seen, Just it, it, she's just always, like, pads on pads on pads. Like, I'm surprised she doesn't have, like, one in her pocket at all times. You know, like, like coffee in one hand. Even if she doesn't. Yeah, she probably does. She, I, I bet she's got some serious pockets. Uh, hmm? You know, like, one in her one hand, coffee in the other. Like, four on her desk. One tucked into her bun or something. Just, like... <laughs> well, the bun's only around for... <laughs> Combat situations. <laughs> a little bit, anyway. <laughs> Was a, I had a convers—I was having a conversation with someone a couple a month or so ago. Uh, they had posted a screenshot of Star Trek and said, "Can you guess the episode?" And I looked at it and then checked something. I'm like, "Yeah, it's this episode." Like, because Janeway's hair is as good as carbon dating. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll have to keep, we'll have to say uh, keep track of that. Uh, yeah. The Jane, the Janeway hairstyles definitely changed quite a bit throughout the show. So Janeway's looking at all her pads before they shove off from DS9 to go after the Maquis ship. Mm-hmm. Tom is standing on the bridge in his best observer pose. And later we're in the... Another note I had is that Tom seemed really like irritated with the replicator. Hot, plain tomato soup. Hot, plain tomato soup. Right, yeah, but is this like a new replicator OS update or something? I wonder what Bolian style is. Who puts rice in tomato soup? Is it really is it tomato soup anymore? Ha- and how points? and how was hot with goldfish tomato soup not an option? I don't know, man. You've had tomato soup with goldfish? No, you haven't. You don't like tomatoes. I don't <sighs> like tomatoes. You've had goldfish with goldfish. I've had goldfish. Right. Just imagine that with food you've never eaten. Because Pepperidge Farm didn't pay them. <laughs> so what? Uh, yeah, yeah. So now, so now that we are something like ten minutes into the episode, but thirty-five minutes into our recording, uh, <laughs> uh, we're at least fifteen minutes into the episode. What else jumped out at you? All right, well, do we want to talk at all about the douchebag doctor and first officer? Oh, yeah, no, I, I definitely noted uh, first officer who gon' die, uh, sure hamming it up when they get swept away by the caretaker. You know, if he had braced for impact where he was instead of trying to get back to his seat, he may not have, di- not have died. I'm okay with it. Oh, yeah. And obviously the doctor, because he was a dick to Paris, was supposed to... Well, also so that we could replace him with Robert Picardo. Yes. Who is also a dick to Paris. So he's, the EMH is kind of a dick to everybody. Yes. Eh, the overly convenient deaths. I, I I would have preferred something slightly less obvious. 
Yeah. For a way to clear out those slots on the org chart, like maybe it was very convenient. Yeah. We have to get the you know like we have to get this mission underway right away, and so all we have on hand right now is like you know we're, we're uh, some reason like for some reason why the doctor, for example, can't be on the ship or whatever. Like I, other than all of them just blowing up. I'm wondering if anyone other than the doctor, the nurse, the chief engineer, and the first officer died. Oh, and the and the nav- and the helmsman died, or if those were the only casualties. Uh, well, I mean, they're of the only casualties we see. Everyone else is just sort of banged up a little bit. Well, we don't see the chief engineer, but yeah, we hear. Also, I understand why it was done, skipping all the way to the end. Why Chakotay was appointed, nominated, not promoted, because was named first officer. But I feel like Tuvok should have been first officer. Yes. But I think Janeway wanted to keep him in as her tactical officer, recognizing that she was going to need someone she trusted in that role as well. Mm. Yes. But especially because Tuvok had served with Janeway for years, mm-hmm. she trusted him. Yeah, it would. But at the same time, by making Chakotay her executive officer, it... It uh, helps bring the Maquis. Like I said, I recognize why it was done. I'm just saying there was another equally strong contender. Also, what's up with uh, Parrish just becoming a full lieutenant? I think Janeway just for some reason doesn't like Harry Kim. Yeah, there's that too. Uh, But, okay, so you notice she gave all of the Maquis get provisional rank pins. I mean, no, I didn't notice this yet because I don't think... Was I guess Chakotay was on the bridge at the very end? Yeah, the, and you you could you get a brief okay, shot of okay. Bolana in, in a in a uniform as well. But anyway, the Maquis got provisional rank pins. Yeah, no, like I know this. Paris gets like straight up official Starfleet uh, commissioned officer pin. Yeah, and Paris is certainly no more official Starfleet than Chakotay, for instance. Yeah, I mean they're both turncoats. Yeah, turn. Tunics? Starfleet usually doesn't wear coats. <laughs> Turn jumpsuits. Mm, yes. But yes, the, you you do have to feel bad for, for Harry Kim. Speaking of them being turncoats, at one point, Tom Paris says that he was cashiered out of Starfleet. Mm-hmm. What, uh, had you ever heard that term before? I have, but I also saw this episode when I was nine, so... So maybe that's when you heard it before. It may have been in this episode that I heard it before. Yeah. But I feel like I've seen that before, not just on Star Trek. Did you notice that at least twice Harry Kim introduced himself as Kim? Harry Kim? Not Ensign Kim, Harry Kim. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. So I really enjoy this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like pretty much everything right up until they beam aboard the array into the middle of a hoedown. I have noted that they're a bunch of nerds because they're in the middle of a hoedown and they got all the tricorders out being like, this is no hoedown. This isn't even a hootenanny. This is a hologram. <laughs> Although, Hollow Farm Girl has a heck of a backhand. Just, you know, knocks Tom Paris out. Yeah. And I'm surprised Tom Paris, after flying at Ensign Stadi at warp speed, wasn't interested in seeing the root cellar. He was a little bit. A little bit, but not like... Uh, one thing I noticed that I don't know if I had ever noticed before, Voyager has its own phaser rifle mo- design. Compression phaser rifles. Yeah. Yeah. What? I don't know. Mm. But that's, uh... Because it's not the phaser rifle from TNG or DS9, and it's also... And it's not the updated one that they used in First Contact, either. It's something else entirely. Uh, yeah, I I had not seen that before. I mean, other than probably on Voyager. So, yeah, it, it looks a little bit like the TNG D69 uh, phaser rifle, but weirder. It looks a little bit like the First Contact one. It does not look anything like the... You're right, you're right, you're right. One yeah, used yeah. on the show. But actually, that was later. That was when they returned to the site of the hotel. Yes, that was... That was, that was after... The Maquis beamed aboard Voyager, because we got through the hoedown, Tom Paris is knocked out, they get beamed back to their respective ships. They discover that Harry Kim is not there, so Janeway hails the Maquis, and they have like a really cordial conversation. Uh, 
find out that both of them are missing crew. The Maki beam aboard the Enterprise. Yeah. Not the Enterprise. Beam aboard the Voyager. <laughs> uh, oh, so that's another thing I want to talk about. Go on. On TNG, they called it the Enterprise. Always. But on Voyager, they call it Voyager. Yep. Yeah. I want to talk about... I thought the transporters disabled weapons. Do they? There was a... They can. I thought that was a plot point. They can't. That you can't. Transporters can disable weapons, but you have to like. I'm pretty sure that's something. But you they have can to, like, yeah. They can like. They can like detect them midstream. And they can disable. And they can be like removed or disabled upon rematerialization. Right. But it looks like in this case they didn't do that. Silly billies. Speaking of transporters, why does the dude have to like? I don't understand the idea of a transporter technician. Yeah, when when all he's doing is like you know like beep beep beep, and then like and like moving his finger on like, on like a slider to energize, and then slider down to unenergize. I guess and the only reason it's a slider is because it was a slider on toss. I don't have a problem with the fact that like I don't have a problem with the idea like uh, like of them maintaining it being a slider, even if it was that way on toss because it was probably, it was probably a handle on toss. Yes, it was an actual physical slider. Uh, yeah, no. I'm fine with that. Like that's a little bit of skeuomorphism, or or whatever. I, I mean, but but why? <sighs> yeah, I mean, sometimes you have to do like special things to be able to get a lock in certain situations and all that. But which know. leads me to another thing about the transporter. <laughs> so they meet Neelix and tow his ship into the surprisingly large shuttle bay. And this is when we get the transporter slider. If they're towing his ship into the shuttle bay in the first place, why are they even using? Why them? not just wait? Yeah. They don't want to waste any time. They gotta, they gotta pick this guy's brain right away. See what makes his weird bra- his brain different from human brains. Uh, no, sorry, sorry, that would be in the probably mirror Voyager. Um, I don't think there is a mirror episode in Voyager, is there? There is not a mirror episode. There is an episode uh, set hundreds of years in the future where we see a a incorrect historical record of what Voyager looked like and it's very much as if there had been a mirror Voyager. Okay. Anyway. So, Neelix takes them to meet the Kazon Ogla. Yes. And the Kazon Ogla surround Neelix and haul him away to take him to Bullet Town. Sorry, wrong franchise. Uh... To haul him into their map painting. Yes. It was a nice map painting, but it was obviously right. not real. You mean you, they didn't film on location on an alien planet? Those cheapskates. I know, right? I just, I, I had these like Mad Max Fury Road vibes coming off of the case on oh, yeah. Uh And why do their ships match? If they're like living in this wasteland or whatever where their ships just sit on the ground. That's weird. Uh, and there's like 20 of them living in like ruined buildings. Why do their ships match? Okay, so do you want some future knowledge? I, I'm, it's not important to the rest of the conversation. When Okay, because I can tell you why the ships match. Yeah, they're part of the larger thing, I know. But so the captain tells them to energize and beam down the big over-engineered Federation storage jug things and the the bartering for water certainly helps with the fury road uh, yes <laughs> the mad max in general yeah uh, yes although i mean honestly that's a i mean fresh water is a genuine scarcity in space oh man now i need to make a gif of janeway shooting having those uh shooting the things and then saying do not my friends become addicted to water it will take hold of you, and you will resent its absence. Ooh, except Jamie didn't shoot them. I know, but you you get what I'm saying. So then, you know, Neelix breaks free and gets his, you know, gets uh, uh Jabin, 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 yes, in a in a chokehold, and he has his phaser up against his head and just like, based on how it looks, all I'm thinking in my head is, everybody back, I'm gonna open this guy's garage door all over the place. Why does Neelix even have a phaser? Hey, you know, when you're, uh, 
out in the de- out in the debris fields, you gotta fend for yourself against the de- the the hmm. other debris people. The point of my whole thing was just that it looked like a. But wasn't it a door. Starfleet phaser? No, it looked like a gar- it looked like a garage door opener. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Yeah, and that's why I said everybody back. I'm gonna open this guy's garage door all over the place. That was my thought. For some reason, I thought like they had given him a phaser. I'm thinking that seems. No. Weird that they would have given him a phaser. No, no, no. It only sounds exactly the same, and the beam it looks exactly the same as a Starfleet phaser, but it it's designed completely differently. Okay. After all of that, and Janeway says six to beam up. How do they know which six? Presumably, were there Kazon like right next to them or something? Okay. See, that's my first assumption as well, is that's how the operator would know which six. What if a Kazon had jumped into the pile at that exact second? They had five comm badges, because I think Neo's had a comm badge at this point, on his very, very ugly clothes. He does. He does, because I have a screenshot of those very, very ugly clothes. They're very, very ugly clothes, but how'd you like my comment about what they are? Yes, I like that. Yeah, that's a good comment. You can find my comment if you go to Twitter. I'm Gamicus on Twitter. I'm Tyrannicus on And we're going to give you that again at the end of the episode. So, uh, there's five comm badges and a sixth person, which is presumed to be in close proximity. I don't know if the transport system can, like, detect, like, Mm -hmm. touching proximity uh, to the five comm badges. But what if a Kazon had jumped into the dog pile? then they probably would have also beamed up the Kazon, because that does sometimes happen. They do sometimes... Certainly if they're touching, they, they just okay. come along. So that that's what... It, it's this, like, weirdly imprecise technology for something they've been using for, like, a hundred years at this point. Yeah. <sighs> Two hundred years. Really? No. Really? Yeah. No. Yes. Really? Enterprise is in the 22nd century. Oh. Toss is in the 23rd. TNG, DS9, and Voyager in the 24th. Okay. And, yeah. So. And then, still on the transporter. I'm not done with this thing yet. <laughs> when Kess is recovering in the med bay, and they're, and she's explained to them, like, oh, no, no, sorry, the, cu- the, the tunnels are caved in. And, like, she just forgot that she just got beamed through freaking space from the planet to a starship, and that the, the, the Federation doesn't need to worry about things like tunnels. Well, she doesn't necessarily know that they can beam into the planet. No, but she could have, like, thrown that out there. But, like, well, the tunnels are collapsed, but, I mean, you guys apparently have some sort of magic that just, like, takes a person from point A to puts them in point B, so who knows? Maybe that'll work. And it, like, not just that, and I would allow her not making that logical leap, but whoever it was that did it, and it may have been Janeway, was explaining it to her like almost as if to say, you've never experienced a teleporter before, because it's not like you, we just beamed you off the freaking planet, but we have technology that doesn't need to worry mm, about that sort of thing. There is that. So, and there's also we have that moment with the Doctor where he's, you know... Being a legitimate doctor concerned about his patient, and they just turn him off. Yes. I appreciate the future knowledge that they're not allowed to do that in, like, yeah. many, many episodes. It's not until, yeah, we get a few seasons in. Yeah. But I I really like the Doctor's arc. And, the Doctor's growth yes. as a character exactly. is yeah. great. Yeah. I was going to say arc and evolution, but growth kind of captures that pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, the Doctor's arc I love a lot. Um, yeah, especially in light of uh, how brusque he is in the beginning. Yeah, he's my favorite Voyager character. Uh, yeah, way up there. Um, I really like Bellana as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like a lot of them. Yeah, I like most of them. I'm not a huge Kess fan, but that's mostly because they never really like flesh out her character, do her justice. Yeah, I think I'm. I think I'm done. Ranting about the transporter, but I'll let you know if that uh, if that changes. <laughs> well, I'll have a complaint that's transporter adjacent later. Ah, excellent, excellent. Okay, so after they beam back up, mm-hmm. and then we find that yeah, if they scan the planet to find a hole in the field, then they can beam through it. That seems what I'll allow that from the perspective, like if without knowing how the transporter works at all. But thinking of the idea from a perspective of uh, radar, for example, 
Mm-hmm. So, uh, so a radar dish, a radar array, uh, is constantly sending out a, a solid signal the whole the whole second time, just getting big, wide swath picture of of what's out there at all times. Think like the Doppler radar that you see on the Weather Channel, mm-hmm. but on a combat vessel, you can ultra focus the radar. Mm, okay, I get what you're saying. Uh, for a, for targeting mode, so the radar saw the plane that it's trying to target the whole time, but it needs to switch into target acquisition mode in order to drive a missile in. Okay. They also sometimes will hang a whole ham in front of the radar and then target the ham, and the ham explodes. I thought that was a myth. My dad told me this story, and I believe my father. Okay. Uh, because what's not a myth is that in target acquisition mode, the thing pumps out like a million plus watts of energy. <laughs> so you don't want to stand there. No, no, you shouldn't, shouldn't stand there. So, <laughs> yeah, it's no joke. So they beam down and they talk mm-hmm. to the Okampa, and we find out that Harry and Bolana have effected a rescue on their own, or a, an escape. And oh, I, I didn't even mention uh, when Harry and Bolana escape. Bolana knocks out one of the guards with a with a classic Star Trek double fisted punch. Oh, yeah, no, I, I, I noted that as well. I don't know if that was during the escape or her initial I just woke up in a strange room thing, but... Yeah, I think that was her initial waking yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. The, yeah. yeah that, that must be part of the, like, the Federation self de- self-defense course at the Academy. It's gotta be. Except it wouldn't work at all. I mean, anyway. you know how much Starfleet loves naming their maneuvers. That's gotta be, you know, like, like the Kirk knockout maneuver or something. Yes. Just, just put both your fists together. It's twice as, it's twice as effective. Not. I really don't know. I've never taken any self self defense stuff. I I don't actually know from personal experience, but I read an article about how that's actually a super weak thing. I do sometimes see in like Jackie Chan and Jet Li movies that they like do both of their fists together, but they're doing like a lunge maneuver at the same time. So that's probably pretty different than a swinging thing. It could very well be. I don't know. I'm not a fistologist. So then we find out that the array is shooting at the planet to close the energy conduits. And we get, this is my transporter adjacent complaint. Uh, They say they can't beam them out because the energy from the array has irradiated the planet's crust. So, they say that they're then, oh, we'll need to take the tunnels up to the surface to get beamed out. Mm-hmm. To the irradiated crust? Okay, so, I remember seeing you make this comment on Twitter. Mm-hmm. So, I've been prepared for this. Alright. I see what you're saying. However, mm-hmm. it could simply be that it is a, it's, think of, like an electrical storm messing with the ionosphere in a in a region. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, you can't watch the footballs on your satellite TV as well. Mm-hmm. In a sense, the atmosphere, I mean, it's not irradiated, but you understand what I'm saying. It could be a mild enough ra- uh, radiation level, like, say, from a bunch of bananas, or Grand Central Station, that it's nothing to be too concerned about if you're just getting to the surface, calling in your beam out, and then leaving, especially when you have the dedicated EMH. There's no need for concern. I am capable of treating any injury or disease. Hmm. I suppose that's true. But it could be just enough that it's scattering their targeting sensors especially considering that they need to use their transporter targeting sensors to punch through the very small gaps in the shielding. All right, all right. Just try, you know, like, we can't both of us be going after the transporter system. <laughs> Next episode, you can have all the transporter complaints, and then you can defend it against against mine. I don't even think they use the transporter. They never use the transporter ever again. Uh, <laughs> how ridiculous would that be? 
It uses up too many bioneural gel packs. <laughs> Captain, we noticed that every time we transport seven, six people or more. And we also have to fire a torpedo. Oh, God. So we completely glossed over the fact that the array is shooting these beams at the fifth planet in the system. Yes. Right, and we find out that the beams are effectively, uh, I don't know if they ever make clear that it's transport or it's just like, it's just energy. It's energy. Yeah, okay. And then there are systems within the Ocampa colony, which is underground, which we mm-hmm. don't explicitly say, but we kind of make clear with the tunnels and everything. Uh, and then there's equipment in the Ocampa colony that will take that energy and, well, basically replicators, and turn it into everything the Ocampa need to survive. And the beams are speeding up. And now all of a sudden the beams have turned into weaponized blasts to seal uh, the gap in the crust or whatever that the caretaker had been beaming his beams through. So, yep. The clock is ticking. Indeed. Tuvok tells us that the logical conclusion is that the caretaker is going to die. Mm-hmm. And so he is trying, and he had to speed things up and, and get the Okapa well stocked. So here, I have some complaints about this whole thought. Okay, so the caretaker's providing the Okapa with stuff to survive because he doesn't think they can survive on their own. What's he gonna? What's he thinks gonna happen in five years when they run out of the energy? Well, he. Do, I mean, he knows. He he tells Janeway what's gonna happen in five years. That the Kazon will. Steal the water. But in a few years, when the compass energy runs out, it won't matter. They'll be forced to come to the surface, and they won't be able to survive. So, so, so he knew, but he wanted to delay it as much as possible. Mm. All right. And we will get back to the caretaker and his five-year plan in a second. Doc, comrade. I want to talk about Tom Paris, who has graduated from being a douche to a racist? Yes. <laughs> yes, seriously. Uh, the only thing that saves that scene is that Chakotay, like, is, like, actually funny. Yes. That is really the only thing that saves it, because your life belongs to me isn't, you know, isn't that one of your Indian traditions or something like that? Like, I can't remember his exact words. Yeah. And Chakotay saying, no, 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 wrong tribe. Can't you yes. turn into and then a bird? Later he's like, can't you turn into a bird? Like, no, no, you're too heavy. So yes, Chakotay saved that, but wow, Tom Paris. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Like, I didn't remember Paris being quite this much of a dick. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely remember him being like an arrogant douche. I. Oh not yeah, rem- but we'll, not. We'll have to we'll have to keep an eagle eye out for uh, for further Paris du- douchery and possible racism. <laughs> Yes, apparently. Uh, on a more jovial topic, uh, I do kind of feel like Harry Kim missed an opportunity when we get back to the ship and the EMH is talking to Harry Kim because Bolana refuses further medical treatment. Is the crew always this difficult? I don't know, Doc. It's my first mission. And it would have been equally good. It's, you know, I don't know, Doc. It's my first day, too. Mmm. Yeah, that would have been good. I recognize that it wasn't Kim's first day, because obviously he had to get from wherever Voyager picked him up to DS9, to the Badlands, etc., etc. But it's funnier. Yes. So, then they go back to the array, and the Kazon are, are hanging around, being all Kazon-y. Yes. And uh, they, after a bit of a showdown with the Kazon... Janeway beams over to the array. With Tuvok. With Tuvok in tow. Don't actually. forget Tuvok. And they talk to the caretaker. And this is where the caretaker explains his whole thing. How he's he and his people accidentally destroyed the Okapa's planet. And he stayed behind to provide for them. And now he's dying. And he's been searching for a compatible replacement. Which is why he brought them there in the first place. And then Janeway has the, talks to him about how just because he thinks the Okampa can't live without him, that uh, that they they can because people can adapt and f- face diversity and overcome it. 
And I, I talked about this one on Twitter, too. Uh, when Janeway is saying that, she sounds a lot like uh, Kirk from the original series because there are multiple episodes where they come across a crew that's uh, a planet that's being controlled by insert thing here and Kirk says oh this is bad we must destroy it because these people need to evolve naturally mm. so before Janeway gives her children need a chance to grow up speech mm -hmm. she's listening to the caretaker and she says you've been trying to procreate yeah. think of how the caretaker's going about trying to procreate he's kidnapping abducting drugging people. and yeah. forcibly because yes. Yeah. Yeah. And you thought we would only have to talk about assault on Stargate. <laughs> Thankfully, that's mostly dialed down, but we'll see how t how season two goes. But <laughs> <laughs> now that we're a little bit more uh, wise to that uh, kind of thing. Yeah, no, that's definitely a little, definitely more than a little yeah. wrong, what the caretaker's doing. A little rapey. <laughs> yes. So let's talk about the space battle. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about how enormous that Kazon ship is. That was not a small ship. Uh, I'm, I'm going to get to the enormous Kazon ship. First of all, talking about Starfleet and their love of maneuvers, mm -hmm. what the heck is evasive maneuver Delta for? Because it looks like the ship just like kind of like bends to the left a little bit. Like Fire phasers, evasive pattern Delta 4. That's what evasive maneuver Delta 4 is, obviously. Like, why do they even, like, why, why do they have all the different evasive maneuvers? Like, why can't they just, like, tell the helmsman take evasive maneuvers how is the captain looking at like and i get that starfleet captains are the greatest captains to ever captain anything that's ever been captained but how is the captain looking at the previous who cares how many seconds or minutes of the battle the instantaneous snapshot of where the battle is right now and making the call that this exact preset evasive maneuver is the right call without them immediately then saying no oops no sorry bravo seven no belay that echo yeah. three and not just saying well no we know they're in the delta quadrant so we know it's got to be one of the delta ones Oh, that's a good point. I had not considered that. But rather than just saying to their academy-trained helmsman, yeah. take your evasive maneuvers, using information fed to you by your academy-trained tactical officer. Like, come on, guys. <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, man, that big honking Kazon ship. Dang. Mm -hmm. That's like the Fjord F-450 of the Delta Quadrant. Yeah. And it went down like a chump. No, it totally did. And not just that, but the way it went down. It was like, like just the Maquis ship hit it, and I, I, it's not even like we get Chakotay to give it like a throwaway line, like, I'm quickly arming the warheads on our remaining four photon torpedoes, or something like that, and overheating our warp coil. But why did he have to stay behind the controls until the very last second? What the heck was the Mondo Kazon ship gonna do? Do yeah, I was wondering that. Too. In the last 10 seconds of the dive bomb, why the heck did it sound like a dive bomber? With the... Why was that sound effect applied? Why did, when the Kazon ship get hit, did it start to veer towards the array as if it was falling towards it? That's... That's a common thing in space battles. I know. Harumph. Yes, quite. I definitely appreciated jumping to <laughs> Star property in Battlestar that they had more Newtonian space battles where they could, while still moving in a constant in a in one direction, they could flip the ship on an axis. I'd like to point out that last week you were the one that gave me crap for bringing up that particular star property? No, I didn't. And, now th and, and that comment doesn't exist either. <laughs> the power of the editor is all. Uh, 
no, 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 you're I'm, right. You're right. I'm okay with bringing up any science fiction property whatsoever. You're the one that apparently only wants to talk about wants to start with Star. <laughs> it was no, no. You're absolutely right. Not remember my exact words. I have to imagine that a it was there for comedic effect. I realize that you're not actually complaining. Uh, <laughs> it was yes. a as much for comedic effect as it was for like no, not a third podcast. <laughs> Ooh, third podcast. No, because because uh, I had to like I had to intentionally reserve myself from bringing up another different sci-fi property that I know you'd be way more interested in talking about that also had proper Newtonian physics in its star fight in its star battles. Oh, which one's this? Babylon Five. Well, that fits more with your desire to only want to do twenty-year-old shows. No. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so let's let, let's wrap up this episode <laughs> by getting to what may be one of the most ridiculous lines in the whole thing was when Janeway makes her decision, and this sort of thing is going to come up a lot, uh, that we're not going to put another group or person into a worse position than they currently are just so that we can get home sooner. Yeah. So they have the opportunity – they had a brief opportunity – a brief window where they could have maybe – see, this is what – because once the like once the big case on a ship crashes into the array, it's pretty much game over at that point anyway. Game, game over. over. Game yeah. over. Uh, it's pretty much game over, right? Game over, man. It's game over. Yeah. Because Tuvok says it was going to take him hours. Mm-hmm. So one – so – Janeway's whole point about we opted to not punch the caretaker in his stupid oozy face and take over the array and use it to beam us back, screw the Okampa, is kind of moot. But the larger point remains, which is that this is not the first – well, this is what well, is the first, but it's certainly not the last time that Janeway is going to make a decision like that. No, and that's part of what I admire about Janeway. Right, but then Bellana goes and has to say the really, really silly thing of Who is she to be making these decisions for all of us? She's the captain. Which is also, you know, the show writer's way of telling us that Chakotay's on board and he's going to be part of the team as much because he maybe admires Janeway as it is because he recognizes what's best for his people and he will continue to see them as his people for at least the first half of the first season. Mm-hmm. It, it, it It'll it, it won't be until like the latter half of the first season of four the whole crew is the crew and they like fully appreciate they are all in the freaking Delta Quadrant together and they can't have these weird party lines. In fact, the last episode of the first season is about that. Okay, so scratch. It won't be until the latter half of the of the first season. Like it won't be until the end of the first season. <laughs> but right. Um, but yeah, come on now. Like I get that you were in the Maquis, but as we saw in our um leading up to this show, the Maquis are not some weird like we don't have any leaders organization. People make unilateral decisions. They make large decisions. And although you're free to go your own way, if you're on a starship 70,000 light years from home, no. Yeah. Also, <laughs> Eugene. <laughs> okay. Tom. Not Thomas. Tom. Eugene Paris. No, it is Thomas Eugene Paris. Okay, fine. Darn. That ruined a little bit because, like, I'm appreciating the juxtaposition between Tom and Eugene. Anyway, Eugene, huh? What's so funny it's about name. Eugene? It's just a name you don't hear very much anymore. Well, apparently it had a comeback. Will have had? We'll have had a comeback. Yeah. yeah, that works. So, anything else on, uh, like, for real? I mean, I got, like, two and a half pages of notes, but... Uh, this episode ends... This episode ends with the same line that the final episode ends with. Mr. Paris set a course for home. Ah. Wouldn't it be kind of cool if every season ended with that? Hmm. It would, but it didn't. All right, you know I don't want to watch the show anymore. Then if they're not gonna have that, <laughs> anything else you wanted to mention? Talk about? 
yeah, I'm going to say no. I think that's more or less it. Well, thank you for listening to our first, sort of first, because we're... Anyway, thank you for listening to our first proper episode of Delta Flyer. Uh, You can find us on Twitter, Delta Flyer Pod. I am Gamicus on Twitter. I am Tyrannicus on Twitter. You can also find us on Facebook, Delta Flyer Podcast. We're deltaflyerpodcast.com? Deltaflyerpod.com. Thank you. I don't go to our website very often. Next week... We'll be talking about Parallax with a special guest. Ooh, I love special guests. Definitely check us out for that. Uh, subscribe. Uh, give us uh, as many stars as you feel we warrant on iTunes and Google Play. Do they use stars in Google Play? I don't know. Maybe. I'm sure they have some sort of rating system. Give us a solid one. Like, as solid as you think we deserve. But And then, like, another one. Yeah, give us like, an another one on top rating. of that. I'll take it. I'll take a free. I'll take a free extra one. And you know, feel free to give us feedback. We'd love to hear it. Tell us what you think we're we're doing well in the episode. What we're what we're doing badly, and we'll possibly take that into mind. And if you enjoyed this, do check out our other podcast, Stargate Weekly, where it's a lot of this. But we're talking about Stargate instead of Star Trek. So you know, yeah. we're currently in the second season of Stargate SG One. Uh, yes, the if you subscribe now to Stargate Weekly, you'll. The, the next episode that drops into your feed will be a season two episode, but obviously through the power of the internet, our whole backlog is there. So indeed. Thanks again for listening. Yeah.